0: Chief Justice, the police of the court.
1: I had been through so much. It was one person that I was, that was abusing me, that I was afraid of, but I wasn't afraid of anybody else in the world.
2: This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Prison is a walled-off, secret world where inmates and officers live a sort of altered reality. For the past 10 years, I've been reporting on the people inside San Quentin State Prison in Northern California. And over those years, some of the men I've been reporting on, more than 20 of them, have themselves become journalists, writing stories for the San Quentin News and producing audio stories for the San Quentin Prison Report. Stories that look out rather than look in. One day, an audio reporter named Greg Eskridge told me his mom was coming to visit. How long had he been in prison, I asked? More than 20 years. He came to prison at the age of 19 after he was convicted of murder, attempted murder, and assault with a deadly weapon. And he was sentenced to 65 years and two life terms. What's it like to be a teenager, sent to prison for what may be forever? And what's it like to be his mom, I asked them to tell me their story, mother and son.
0: My name is Patricia and My son is Gregory Eskridge, who's an inmate up in San Quentin Prison. When My son, Gregory, was incarcerated uh, about 21 years ago. I was a dispatcher, you know, a 911 operator and i specifically remember two detectives coming in and they went into my uh lieutenant's office and they sat and talked to him and i had no clue that i would be the next person that they would talk to they proceeded to tell me that you know they believed that my son uh, was arrested for uh shooting someone so oh my god when they said that it was like i went numb like i couldn't believe what they were saying I went into the locker room and I just fell down. And I just cried. I couldn't breathe. I remember another female police officer coming in and asking me if I was okay. I couldn't even tell her that. Yes, all I could do was just nod. She went to get me some water and it was like a feeling that no parents ever want to experience. So I had to put on a, a happy face and go back to my post and pretend that everything was okay. But it really wasn't okay. After that, it was never okay. And I'm sure my demeanor changed because I'm always a happy-go-lucky person. But at that time, um, I had the tendency to just kind of withdraw and alone when I'm hurting because I don't share my pain. So I just sat there answered my phone, did whatever work I had to do, and then I never missed an to by that. I'm not sure if my lieutenant did, but I never did. So, um, I just something silently. Greg was about three when his father was killed on a motorcycle accident. And then you have another child, a, a girl. Yes, I have a, a, another girl by uh, another guy. Who also that other guy, he also helped raise Greg. And Greg was quite quite fond of him. In fact he was so much father that he knew and spent a lot of time with. Yeah. And and they had a good relationship. So why why do you think he started running away? How
3: old was he when he started running away? Oh gosh,
0: I wanna say maybe maybe ten or eleven. Was so long ago. Yeah. Did
3: he ever say why he was running away? What was the problem?
0: No, he didn't. Not that I can remember.
1: My stepfather came into the picture um well maybe around when I was maybe uh maybe eight or nine or, and initially we had a we had a great relationship. You know, he was that that, that male figure in my life, you know, that man that was You know that was teaching me how to play, you know, disc sports. You know, I used to watch him fix cars, and just the whole father-son relationship was uh, was actually great early on. And then um, shortly after that, though, the the abuse started. The the, the spanking started getting worse. And so uh, around 10 or 11 years old, you know, I started running away from home and I was, in, I was basically running away from that violence. They were together for a little while, but they never married and uh, they, had a, uh, they had a daughter together, which is my, you know, my little sister. When I actually ran away, I was living with my mother and it was me, my mother and my little sister and he lived. Um, he lived in uh, West LA, and so, like I say, my mother was actually taking me to West LA so he can give me a spanking. I don't consider myself to be a, but I was a bad kid. You know, I think I did what a lot of boys do in school, is which would be like mischievous and maybe disruptive in class. You know, like class clown type stuff. So it's never really anything really extreme, you know, but, you know, it was enough for the, for the teachers to call home and say, you know, Greg was, you know, goofing off in class today. And so it started off just, like I say, with just spanking, you know, a little belt on the bottom and, you know, just hit little spanks on the hand and stuff like that. And then I recall um, it, he, he got a, um, a two-by-four. A piece of wood and he carved it out into a paddle I mean he he sanded it he stained it and he even lacquered it and the ironic part is that he even gave it a name and he called that paddle Mr. Green to this day I don't know where that name came from but he called it Mr. Green and when he made that paddle was when the beatings really got severe. I mean, it got so bad to the point to where, you know, he would lay me down, uh, you know, I'd be naked, put my pants down, and would lay me on top of his lap and would start, like, really spanking me, like, really, really hard with that uh, with that paddle. You know, so much so. As I remember when I used to go into the restroom to use the bathroom, I would urinate like blood would come out. And I also used to have, have to speak on my stomach or my side because my butt was so so tender from the beatings that I you know, I couldn't I couldn't sit down. When the stick wasn't around to spank me, you know, he would uh you know, he would use his fist, you know, sometimes hit me, slap me in the face, you know, knock me around. I remember the first time one of the first times I ran away from home was because I had gotten in trouble in school and, and my mother was taking me over to his house so he could spank me. And I'll never forget, you know, my mother told me to go open up the garage door. And I remember I went to the garage and I opened up the garage and there was just so much panic and so much fright in me in anticipation of that meeting that I just ran away. I ran away from home, left the garage door open. I just took off running. And that was one of the starts. uh, That was when it all started, when I really basically started running away from home. After those episodes um, of those beatings, it basically changed my relationship with him. I go from really caring about someone, really trusting someone, looking up to this person, this male figure in my life. Wanted to emulate everything that he did, and then I uh, I started getting beatings from him, and so that trust was basically gone because I was basically afraid of him.
3: Didn't you tell your mom like, no, I don't want to go there. He's gonna he's gonna hit me. It's gonna be bad. I'm terrified. Didn't did you try to tell her?
1: Well, no, well, no, no, no. She, you know, that was the, you know, that that was her reason for taking me over there was because. You know, I did something, I did something that was wrong. I got in trouble maybe in school. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, but, um, yeah, she wanted me to, uh, she wanted me to get disciplined. And, you know, he was a disciplinarian. And so she was taking me, driving me to his house so he can, uh, so he can, um, discipline me. You know, she was in the house when it was going on. So I just basically assumed that that she knew it was happening you know um you know because i was so i mean i was on my own you know it was just uh i felt like it was just me you know and i was so young i didn't feel like i had a voice to be able to express myself to anyone about anything that was going on so so i basically just had to just take it up to the point where i just i couldn't take it anymore and i was like i gotta get out of
0: here you know, family is a strong entity, and, you know, there was division there, and maybe he didn't know how to handle it. So, of course, I had to work during the day, and he was, unfortunately, was last key kid, and he and my daughter, he was, you know, often babysitting her a lot. So um, he started going away from home. I went to, you know, the detectives that I worked with with and asked for advice, find out what I could do. Um, ultimately, he, he did end up going into a foster home because he didn't want to stay with me. So I had no choice but to uh, just let him go into a foster home.
1: The first day when I ran away from home, I actually felt liberated in a sense because I felt free. You know, I felt a sense of freedom. Here I am, a young kid in this big world, big dangerous world. However, I felt safe out in the streets because i knew what was at home i had nowhere to go i had no money in my pocket i had no food to eat i was basically on my own but even dealing with all those circumstances it was still better than being at home home rather than the place where i was going to be abused and so i had to get away from that i bounced around from, from foster home to foster home from from cities all the way from Long Beach to LA to Compton, even way out in the valley, I was just I was going to so many different foster homes because a lot of times I would get in the foster home and sometimes the foster parents would be abusive, and so I found myself running away again from that abuse. I lived I basically lived a life of of young life of being constantly on the run. Running from abuse, running from violence, running from the negativity. But then over the years, they were around. It was funny because I was I was in foster care, but but I would see my mother like sometimes on the weekend. I would get like weekend passes, and I would go to uh, I would go to her house. I would go to his house, and so the relationship was kind of starting to kind of like kind of like mend back because here I am in this. I'm in this foster care system around people that that I don't really want to be around. I'm around a bunch of other kids who who don't have parents, who don't have anyone by their side. And so, you know, I was still kind of reaching for that love and reaching for that acceptance. I, I was still trying to grab that from him. One thing about me is that, you know, when I at a young age, I was so tormented inside the home that... I made a vow that when I get out into the world, I would never let anybody put their hands on me and get away with it. And I took that mentality with me out into the world, into the streets. I got in trouble in school, and one of the teachers tried to push me, and I hit the teacher. And I slapped the teacher, and when this teacher pushed me in the back, to like usher me into the into the building, it was just instinctive for me just to turn around and just hit him, you know, because I had made I had been through so much. It was one person that I was that, would have, that was abusing me that I was afraid of, but I wasn't afraid of anybody else in the world. And so I spent uh, nine months in juvenile hall for that.
0: A couple of years later, my daughter's father did go and get him, and uh, he was staying with him for. Uh,
1: Quite a while. Well, actually, when I got out of juvenile hall and went to go live with my stepfather, you know, our relationship was great. We were going a lot of different places. You know, we were, there were a lot of different, you know, different, it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, I had met his wife. His wife really loved me. You know, she had a little son. I had a little brother to play with, you know, the mother, the my little, my own little sister. You know, they had a nice house in, uh, in Northridge. And it was a nice neighborhood. It was really quiet. You know, a lot of beautiful parks. And so I just got a chance to 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 finally have peace in my life. So it seemed. You know, it seemed like there was just a time where I was doing good in school. I was getting ready to graduate, and and everything was going. Everything was going great. And one day he came to my. He came to the. to the room and he told me like pack all your stuff and I said "Uh, and I said what's going on he said just pack all your stuff and take me back to your mother's house and when he said that you know my insides just dropped you know it was just like a, I just couldn't believe it you know to be I was going to be uprooted abruptly like that like 10 11 o'clock at night and so I packed all my things and you know, and we got, we got in the car, and we got on the road, we got on the freeway, and I just remember this silence, it was just a silence, just inside me, you know, he was, he was talking, he was saying something, but that whole trip, I, I don't remember one word that he said, because it was just, I was so just void of this feeling, and it was just like such a soaking feeling, going back to my mother's house. And so we finally get there and um, walk in. I I I really don't even remember how that conversation went. You know, she just closed the door and just walked away. She put blankets on the the, the couch for me so I could sleep on the couch. And um, that was it, you know, for that night. And to come to find out, the reason that he sent me back to my mother's house was because my, my mother and him were going back and forth because he, I guess he owed child support for, um, for my little sister. And so I guess his thinking was, I'm taking care of your son and yet you still want me to pay child support. And so I'm going to just send Greg back to you then, you know, cause he's your son. He's your responsibility. You know, I'm just, I'm basically the stepfather. He's not, he's not my biological son. So I don't. I'm not obligated by law to to do anything for him. And so that was his rationale for sending me back. I think I went back to like visit for maybe, uh, like I say, maybe Thanksgiving. But pretty much, that was pretty much it after that. I came to jail in 1994, so that was pretty much the uh, the last time I seen him. Well, you know, I had been away from my mother. For so long you know we didn't really get along really that well and so when I came when I came to stay with her she made it very clear to me that you know you're 17 you're going to be gone you're going to be leaving at 18 basically don't get comfortable here because you won't be here long and I said heed to that shortly after I was there with her I left and went out on my own, you know, before I I turned 18, you know, I just, I went ahead and left and I was back out on the streets again. We had a pretty strange relationship. We weren't really that close. For some reason, I I have no idea why we weren't that close, but um, we just really weren't. There wasn't really a lot of love and a lot of affection with my mother. Uh, We never had that, that mother and son type relationship that i love you mom i love you son we didn't we didn't exchange those sentiments and so that's something that, that i never got a chance to experience with her because we didn't we didn't have that closeness so it was you know it, it, it was difficult being young you know i wanted to have that that kind of relationship you know that i wanted to, to be able to have someone i can lean on i can I can come to and, you know, in times of, of need, you know, just to have that comfort. But I didn't have that. You
0: no, know, actually, things were going pretty good at that time. In fact, uh, Greg came to live with me as a, as a teenager. And I remember him <clears throat> being in high school. Sorry. remember him being what? in high school and living with me, and uh, he said, I, I thought he was doing okay. He was 19 when this happened. He and a bunch of friends were uh, went to a pizza place one night, and um, the guys thought that Greg and his friends were setting off their car alarm, and they really weren't, and from the story I was told, that there was a fight and one of the guys ended up being shot, and they just kind of, you know, once the, the person I uh, heard the shot, I guess everyone just kind of dispersed and ran, what have
1: you. It was Memorial Day weekend, we were just hanging out. We had some of our friends, some of our, uh, our girlfriends with us, and and um, we just all decided to go to Shakey's, piece pizza place, and go get something to eat. A friend of mine, you know, we, we were walking to Shakey's and a friend of mine bumped into a cheap, and the alarm went off. And so one one guy came out and thought thought one of my thought my friend was trying to break into his car, but we were just walking, he just accidentally bumped into the car. And so he had been drinking and he's making a big stink out of it. So when we get around the corner, the same guy pulled up in the Jeep, but this time he he was with maybe like seven, eight people. They jumped out of the car and um they asked my friend again, like, man, you know, man, man, were you trying to break in this car? And we to it there, suddenly the guy, that, man, no one was trying to break in your car. It was an accident. It start getting loud. It started getting hostile. It starts getting heated. And one of the guys punched my friend in the face. That's how the, that's how the brawl basically started. And so as we are fighting, we hear gunshots. So everyone starts to scatter around, everybody's looking around to see who's to see who's shooting. I didn't I didn't realize at the time that a friend of mine had ran and and had got a gun from his friend's house. I ran up to him, you know, and, and I grabbed the gun and I ran after one of the guys and one of the guys ran inside of the shakies and I shot at him through the salad bar, and the salad bar window exploded. And after that, after I shot him, I, I ran out of the shaky uh, building, and everyone's scattering. And so everyone starts to run. And I see another guy from the other group, I see him running down the alleyway. And so my friends and I, we started chasing him. And so once we finally caught up to him, I hit him with the gun. And you know he fell on the ground, and, and we all continued to uh, we all continued to to keep continue to run, get back down the alley. The person I shot at through the window was not injured. However, I received a, a, a attempted murder for just discharging the gun at him. The other guy is the guy that I, I, I assaulted with the gun. So I have a murder, attempted murder, and assault of deadly weapons. I was arrested June 14, 1994. That's when I saw my mom for the first time in, uh, in, uh, in, a, in a little while. She actually came to the police station. But I guess somehow she found out that I was arrested. You know, I had been gone away from her for so long, I didn't even know her phone number. I was actually shocked to see her. And I was also relieved to see a, a face of someone that, you're, that you know. So it was actually a great feeling to actually see her.
0: When he was arrested, of course I went down to the, to, to the jail to visit him. That's the first thing I did. And I'll never forget, we went into this room. It was like an interview room and he just looked so sad and I looked sad and I tried to be strong to him.
1: I can't, I can't remember exactly how long the visit lasted, but it was enough time for us just to talk and, you know, me just to tell her what happened and what the situation was and what was going on. She had a look of, of concern. And, the, and that look was even actually shocking to really see that, that look of concern on her face. You know, because my mother, you know, she keeps works her emotions on the inside. And, you know, for the one of the first times in my life, I really actually seen, like concern for me in her eyes, and, you know, that was something
0: that, that I wasn't used to seeing. At that particular time, I didn't know that I should have gotten an attorney. I couldn't afford one, because, you know, I just had, like, a clerical position at the time. I really couldn't afford an attorney. I didn't have any, I uh, um, was a homeowner at that time as well, so uh, well, I just relied upon the public defender, so I was keeping contact with him, and I asked him a bunch of questions, and just was praying and hoping for
1: the best. You know, you know, I started my trial. You know, I got a got a lawyer. Actually, I had uh, three different lawyers, three different public defenders. You know, there were so many, uh, there were so many different discrepancies within my case. There was uh, different statements by the police, different statements by the witnesses, and so the case was very, very shaky.
0: And it was extremely hard because I was working nights, night, so I would get off from work and rush down to the courthouse and sit there for a couple of hours, sometimes pretty much all day, and then I would go home and try to get some sleep and then go back to work and trying to concentrate again to start all over again. I can't remember how long the trial lasted. I want to say maybe a week at that, maybe two weeks, I'm not sure.
1: Walking inside of the courtroom, you're already scared to death. I'm on, I'm on trial for a murder that I didn't commit, and... I feel like I'm up against it. You know, I feel like I go in, there, I go in the courtroom and it's, it's the judge, it's the DA, it's the bailiff, and there's, you know, there's, there's nobody in the courtroom. And there's my mother. It was a great feeling, you know, and one of the first times in my life I can really feel a lot of love and support coming from her.
0: The hardest part for, for me to go through and sit there, and listen to everyone's testimony, and not saying not no, this can't be my child. My child's not that type of person, but it was really, really hard seeing the other family members there. They had a look of anger on their face, and I was afraid and just scared, just didn't know what to do. I didn't cry out for help from anyone, um, mainly because I didn't really want anyone to know, and like if this was not real, like this was happening to someone else, but yet I'm sitting there and I'm that someone else.
1: Everyone was behind me. I'm sitting in the front of the, uh, at the desk inside of the courtroom. My lawyer's on the side of me and we're, the DA's on the other side of my lawyer. And so all my family is behind me. I didn't see, see them, but I could hear them. I could hear the family of the victim. You know, I could hear you know my friends. You can hear them like making little small comments. You know, breathing heavily or, or or just making little sighs, But you can pretty much hear hear them more so than see them. The moment that judge gave my sentence, you know, it was a it was a moment that that will be forever etched in my mind. I was found guilty of all three counts of murder, attempted murder, and assault a deadly weapon. And so the judge starts to read, I sentence you to 65 years plus two life sentences. And when he said that, I couldn't believe it. 65 years plus two life sentences said, I nearly put my head down and my heart just fell out of my chest and I could hear the, the family of the victims cheering. Uh, They're on my left side behind me and my family and friends was on the right side on the other aisle and you can hear them crying and weeping. Yeah, when I looked at my mother, you know, as we're as I'm talking about this right now, I can picture back and back to nineteen ninety six, that day of being sentenced and see her face when she's just look I've never seen her look that bad in my life. I've never seen her look like that.
0: So I got there just in time to hear. Just a little bit of his sentence, and that was really really hard because you just think you don't. You think that I just see him say sixty eight to life. So then they take him out of the courtroom, and that was it, right? Oh, after he got married that day,
2: okay. he, <laughs> he
0: got married. He married yes, he married his uh, the, the young kid that he was dating or young girl that he was dating his girlfriend. He got married
1: right after right after the judge gave me the sentence. I got married. Immediately after, once he sentenced me to to 65 years plus two life sentences, my lawyer said, um, "You know, Mr. Mr. Estridge would like to get married. Can you can you do the ceremony?" And the judge was like, "Okay, I'll do it." And so my girlfriend at the time she came on up and um, judge, you know, read off the uh, read the marriage ceremony. After that, I walked back into uh, into the holding tank
0: it was a, a cloud of emotions because as a parent you know i just heard this sentence and it's killing me on one end and shortly after that i had to put on another face a face of happiness because he did get married so i was really happy for him that you know i'm thinking that you know he had someone in his life that's going to be there for the long haul but unfortunately that wasn't the case so it was it was just it was bittersweet
3: As you approach, when you're going to go visit him, what's that like as you get closer, and you, you make a decision, you mark it on the calendar, we're going to come up?
0: We usually go, uh, usually about three times a year. I try to go my birthday, his birthday, and his sister's birthday. We make sure that we go to the bank and get a single dollar bill because you have to carry single dollar bills, and you can carry a total of $50 up there per day. And uh, we go over our wardrobe to make sure that everything's going to pass inspection before we get there. And because we don't want to waste any time, because time is in here when I visit. Earlier in the week, I had
1: someone um, take my clothes and wash my, everything out for me and press everything. And then I sent my boots down to the guy who shines the boots. So my, so, my, so my shirt is ironed and creased up, my pants are ironed and creased up. And my boots are nice and shiny and I have my, and so pretty much um, tomorrow morning, I'll get up in the morning and, and I have some cologne. So I'll, be, uh, so I'll be going out there fresh and smelling good and, and looking good and, you know, and, and then ready to go spend a day with my mother.
0: The minute I see him, he, once again, he has this huge smile on his face. So you know, give him a big hug and a big kiss and uh, this colossal smile is just awesome. I just love to see that in my face and those ever so white sparkling teeth are just, just just sparkling. my mother, You know, she's
1: she's such a she's such a tiny, tiny person. I'm six foot four and so when I see her, you know, I just immediately just give her just a big, big, big giant hug, you know, and I look at her and just you know, I just, I just stare at her face, you know, and I just take the time to just absorb, you know, her energy, absorb her presence.
0: We love, love, love to play Scrabble. We love Connect Four, and we always get a deck of cards, and we play our family all-time favorite game of spoons. And it's, uh,
1: and it's a game where, you, uh, where you, play with, uh, you play with a deck of cards, and, uh, and you have spoons on the table. It's almost like charades. And, but instead but, but of chairs, his spoons.
3: Did, did you guys talk at all about this project? You know, like what it's been like to, to kind of talk through the past 20 years?
1: So there are a lot of things that, that have come up. I was, uh, we were walking around holding hands and we just started talking and she just was like, she's telling me, she's like, you know, I was, um, I was a young, I was a young kid trying to raise a kid you know i really didn't know what to do or how to do it and you know when she told me that i was just like wow you know cuz i get it you know i i, I truly get it you know I, I understand what you know the difficulties of a child trying to raise a child and then a a little a little boy as well Because then she made the comment about that i was that i was a very outspoken little child though so I can I can kind of see the, the difficulties that would have added to uh, to her trying to raise me. But yeah, um, when she told me that I um, I really connected with her in a way that I've never connected with her before. You know, it um, it opened up some it opened up conversation. And you know, and I just looked at her. You know, and I told her, you know, I um, I don't you know I don't hold any grudges against you. You know, for the process for my past, you know, I love you. Um, you know, I know you, you did your best that you could have possibly done, being a little girl. And, you know, I don't, I don't blame her for anything, you know. However, I do forgive her for everything. Our relationship is far better than what it was, you know, 20, 20 plus years ago.
0: And then a few months later, we started the business all over again, the same process all over again. Yes, it's a lifetime commitment. They're your kids <laughs> until you bury them. <laughs> no one tells you that, but it's the fact. Hmm. Or they bury
3: you. <laughs>
1: yes, <Yeah>,
0: exactly. <laughs> one way or the
1: other. <laughs> I think that's the power of, of, of conversation. You know, sometimes you just need a start. Sometimes you have to have somewhere to start and, and this story was that start.
2: son was reported by me and edited and produced by tony gannon our post-production editors are kirsten Jesuits heidel and rachel kane our engineer was howard Gilman at kqed radio in san francisco music in this episode was composed by ian Koss. if you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system tune into life of the law on itunes take a few minutes to post your review like us on facebook and follow us on twitter each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who subscribed to our newsletter a behind the scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming investigative reports. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation. Next on Life of the Law, our team will go in studio at KQD Radio in San Francisco to talk about mother and son, the law in the news, and to share a preview of our upcoming investigative report on one of the most important Supreme Court decisions in the 20th century. Visit our website and make a donation to support investigative journalism in 2017 and beyond. Your support is important. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.